0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 20 verses 1 to 10 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Empty Tomb.
1: I once had a conversation with a man who had later come to Christ but At that moment, he was considering the greatest stumbling block that kept him from the faith, and it was about miracles. How does a person living in the 21st century, a century in which we're guided and directed by scientific principles, supposed to believe in miracles, seemed like a vestige of a pre-scientific era in which superstition and gullibility reigned supreme? Haven't we come beyond those irrational ideas? And yet the entire Christian faith rests on miracles. And the greatest of all miracles is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, dead men don't rise and walk, and you didn't have to wait until the modern era to believe that. And yet, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, the Christian faith collapses. There is nothing left to it. You can't salvage the odd moral lesson from, you know, a few accounts. No, if no resurrection The building collapses, and there's no Christian faith at all. Of course, we could say more. There would have been no Christian faith had the first followers of Jesus not been given, convincing evidence that it was so. By the time Jesus died, everyone had gone. The disciples, with the exception of John, had fled long ago. Then with his death, the women had gone as well. You know, except, of course, for two amazing religious leaders, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who wrapped the body of Jesus in a shroud and placed him in Joseph's newly bought tomb, which was but a stone's throw from the actual site of the crucifixion. And with that, Friday comes to an end. Jesus is buried. He's dead. So let's begin to read our text, which is John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, whenever we read the Gospel of John, we we have to take into account that John wrote his Gospel sometime after the other three Gospels had already been written. John's writing his Gospel now as an old man. He's concerned that a new generation, a generation that's now been born after Jesus, would also come to believe. He knows that their situation is different from that of the eyewitness generation. See, the second generation of believers would have been taught about the events of Jesus' life, but John's most concerned that they understand what true believing is really like. So having said that, we need to read John, understanding that John simply assumes that his readers know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had to say about the life of Jesus. And so when John, as we find him here, saying that it's the first day of the week, meaning that the Sabbath is now over— A new week has begun. But John, in his account, mentions Mary Magdalene only. You see, John assumes that his readers know that Mary didn't go to the tomb by herself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also mention Mary, the mother of James. Mark mentions Salome. Luke mentions Joanna, and seems to indicate there were others as well. Well, at any rate, these women were probably all at the cross, and they most likely also witnessed Joseph and Nicodemus taking the body down and wrapping it. Since the tomb was so close to the place of the cross, we have to assume that they witnessed the two men laying the body of Jesus in the tomb and rolling the stone to seal the tomb. By now the Sabbath is past, and the women decide they're going to go back. So why do they go back? Well, they're bringing spices they've prepared. It's probably the case that given the fact that the day was getting late on Friday and that the high Sabbath was fast approaching, that Joseph and Nicodemus quickly did all they could. But these women have come to make sure the body of Jesus would be properly and lovingly anointed. They're not sure at this moment how they're going to move the stone from the tomb to get at the body. And perhaps they are aware of the things that Matthew reported. You see, the Pharisees had come to Pilate asking for a Roman company to guard the tomb. They're nervous. Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead, they told Pilate. And by the way, that is so fascinating. It seems clear that they had understood what Jesus had said to them all along when he had said, you know, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it. You might remember that during his trial, they had tried to use those very words to give the sense that Jesus was planning a terrorist plot against the temple. But now that they've killed Jesus, they betray that they never misunderstood him. They only said that part of the terrorist plot because they wanted to accuse him of something that would raise concern with the Romans, not because they believed what they were saying. They knew they were lying. So at this moment, they betray that they've always understood, Well, at any rate, the Pharisees get Pilate to give them a Roman contingent to guard the tomb, lest they say the disciples come and steal the body and claim that Jesus has been raised. So they receive permission for a Roman guard to make the tomb secure. This would have been a military guard who were assigned to oversee temple security. They were trained Roman fighting men made up of 16 soldiers whose training included breaking up social unrest using any force necessary. I mean, these men were always on high alert for the penalty for negligence. Well, that was execution. No one was going to get to that tomb without their permission. And it's fascinating that the disciples didn't understand what the Pharisees understood. See, the disciples expected no resurrection. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead. Their hope for the Messiah had died with him. And the women expected no more than to anoint the body. Perhaps they thought they'd, you know, appeal to any soldier who might assist them to roll the stone away. Well, we don't know. I assume they didn't know, but they thought at least they'd give it a try. And then to their surprise, they find no military unit at the tomb. Indeed, there's no body there. And that's where John's account of this matter comes in. So let's read John 20, verses 1 to 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "'They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, "'and we do not know where they have laid him.'" Mary Magdalene immediately flees the tomb. I mean, the other women would have remained and tried to come to terms with this very strange turn of events, but Mary thought she already knew. They, meaning the Roman authorities, in league with the Jewish Sanhedrin, must have made a decision to have Jesus' body laid so close to the place of the crucifixion, they must have decided it was too close, and we've got to move the body of Jesus. Perhaps they had decided to put him into an unmarked grave so that there would be no place for his followers to gather. So Mary ran. She didn't walk, she ran. Her heart is by now overwhelmed with this unexpected turn of events. We notice in verse 2 that John often speaks about himself as the one whom Jesus loved. John's not really saying that he was Jesus' favorite, but rather that being the youngest of the disciples, Jesus was constantly watching out for him, concerned for his well-being. Well, at any rate, Mary finds both Peter and John, Peter because Peter was undoubtedly the leader of the apostolic band, and John because not only is it apparent, to all the other disciples that this is the one that Jesus loved, but also because he was the one who lingered by the cross until the end. I mean, perhaps Mary noticed that Jesus had entrusted his own mother into John's keeping, and for all those reasons, she decides to include John. And I've said this before, that it's likely that John had a home in Jerusalem of some sort, and Peter, well, he most likely had some place where he was living. I have to imagine that Peter and John were not together at that time, but that Mary first got them together. And only after they had come together did she announce the news. She said, the stone's gone. The grave's empty. The soldiers are no longer there. I have absolutely no idea as to where they have taken him. That's the news that she gives. It's startling. So we come to verses 3 to 5. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, there is a curiosity in this account. I I wonder if you've noticed it. You know, at first the two men set out walking, and then verse 3 says Peter went out with the other disciple. See, John now refers to himself as the other disciple. Well, at any rate. John says the two of them went out together and the implication is they start out walking. And then, and John doesn't tell us when it happened, but both of them are now running. So why did they start running? Well, John doesn't tell us. Perhaps they're talking about what's going on and the nature of the moment is you know coming in on them and they're walking faster as they talk and at some point they just start running. And then they're no longer running erasing each other as to who gets there first.
0: As cherished children of God, we all share the Great Commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. To find out more about these exclusive benefits, or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Somewhere along their journey to see the tomb, Peter and John start running. John's younger and faster, and he's now far ahead of Peter, and he reaches the tomb first. He doesn't actually go in. He is, however, crouched over, and he's looking into the tomb, and he notices, for he can see inside, there's no body. But he does see the linen burial cloths lying there. Now, at this point, that's all that's occurred. John sees the empty tomb and the linen burial cloths. But then huffing and puffing behind him comes Peter. So I'm reading verses 6 and 7. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so Peter doesn't do what John does. He he passes John by. You know, John can stand at the entrance to the tomb all he wants. Peter's not satisfied with that. He's going in. Tombs don't frighten him. He needs to investigate. Of course, Peter has always been more outspoken than the rest, as well as more forceful than the rest. You might remember that he was the man who courageously walked out on the water when he saw Jesus walking there. He's the first one who made the confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet, you know, an act of servitude and humility, I mean, Peter was appalled and he said probably what everyone else was thinking, you'll never wash my feet. And when Jesus told his disciples before that night ended, they would all flee away. It was Peter who again spoke up and said, if the rest of these guys flee, that's fine, not me. I'll never desert you. You know, Peter's both impulsive and he's loyal. He fails often, but at this time, it shouldn't surprise us to get the sense that he would be the first one to to put aside all thoughts of approaching the tomb with timidity. I mean, he just bursts right in. And what does he find? Well he finds the linen cloths used to wrap a body in burial. That is the actual linen that was used to wrap Jesus was lying not in a disorder or thrown about fashion, but it was orderly. The face band was by itself neatly folded. And I know there are those who argue that the burial cloth still retained the shape of Jesus body, but you know John never says that. That's mere supposition and speculation. But there is something that we, who later read this account, are to see. Carson says that, you know, what is self-evident here is the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. In the case of Lazarus, he's still in his grave clothes. You know, when Jesus rises from the dead, you know, the contrast is startling. He has slipped out of his grave clothes. You know, from my perspective, the description of what Peter sees sounds so much like a person rising from their own bed. You know, the person rising makes their bed, cleans the room, and then enters into the day. That at least seems to be the impression from the tomb. Now, now we come to the verses that are the key, verses 8 to 10. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John, here again called the other disciple, went to the tomb and believed. So believed what? Well, he believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. I say it's curious because he is the only one at this point. You remember the account of Thomas. It's mentioned later in this chapter. He says, unless I examine him thoroughly, even as far as to the place where the nail marks went and the spear sliced his side, I will never believe. And I get that. I mean, why should we believe that dead men rise? I mean, Thomas, at least so it seems to us, was just being reasonable and logical. Well, he's not alone in that attitude. Consider what we've read. It's Sunday. Mary Magdalene is making her way to the tomb. It's still dark. We know from the accounts of this event that she was not alone. She's accompanied by a group of women. They come to the tomb. They find the place deserted. And so when Mary Magdalene arrives, she comes to an obvious conclusion, a different conclusion than John. They've taken his body. They've moved it. That's why there are no soldiers here. That's why the door to the tomb is open. That's why this place is completely deserted. And then there's Peter, I mean, when Luke records this event, he simply says, Peter was amazed. In other words, how could the tomb be empty the way it is? It makes no sense whatsoever. And so it would seem that he's the only one in the group who reserves judgment until more information is forthcoming. So let's review again. Thomas will say, I don't believe because I know that dead men stay dead. That's universal human knowledge. Mary says... The Roman soldiers obviously removed him for security reasons. Peter says, I have no information that would lead me to any definite conclusion, so I reserve judgment for this moment. And John says, I believe that he rose from the dead. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to assume that John's conclusion, the conclusion of faith, is the gullible one, right? I mean, isn't that the way the believers are sometimes portrayed, especially today in contemporary society? You know, some time ago, I read about an atheist group that was putting ads on public transits in Canada saying, God doesn't really exist, so get on with your life. In other words, believers are gullible, tying themselves down with, you know, commitments to God and so forth. But is John really gullible? I'm going to argue he's the only reasonable man that's there. You know, many of you know the books of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He, of course, is the author of the fictional character Sherlock Holmes. The thing that fascinates readers about Holmes is that he's able to come to conclusions about a crime when no one else sees it. He picks up on clues that seem irrelevant to everyone else, but these very clues lead to the solution to the crime. So how does he do it? What's his secret? You know, in one of his books, The Scandal in Bohemia, Holmes lets us into his very best secret of sorting through the clues. He says, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. So let's eliminate the impossible. John can see in an instant what Peter and Mary Magdalene just don't see. First, if it's grave robbers or Roman security or Jewish leaders' plots, Why are the grave clothes left behind as they had covered the body? And why is the facial cloth, which was tightly wrapped around the corpse, neatly folded and placed where the head was? So let's eliminate the impossible. You know, since that time, many have tried to discount the account of the resurrection. You know, grave robbers and Romans taking a body, that's common. Others say, you know, perhaps the disciples stole it. You know, overpowered a trained Roman fighting guard and just hauled the body off, and after that, they got so bold, they they preached everywhere. Jesus was raised from the dead to the point where it cost all of them their lives. Others say, you know, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb, and after that, everyone always just kept going to the wrong tomb in droves. Others say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't dead. He was just weakened by a blood-loss state, having been tortured for hours, And then Jesus himself, you know, pushed aside a 2,000-pound stone, overpowered the guard of 16 men, came to his disciples dripping blood and lacerated tissue, and convinced them that he had raised from the dead by the power of God. Huh. You see what I'm saying? Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Exactly. Where does the truth actually lead us? Well, here's another curiosity, one that Sherlock Holmes would have mused about. How can one come to the conclusion that Jesus was actually raised from the dead and assume that life really can carry on in the same way after that? One man writes his own response to this discovery. He said, the thought of the risen Christ broke in upon me as it never had done before. Christ is alive, I said to myself, alive. And then I paused, alive. And then I paused again, alive. Can that really be true? living as really as I myself am. I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living, Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel sure about it. See, once we come to terms with that, several things should become apparent to all of us. Let me suggest seven of them. One, death doesn't always win. In fact, in this one case right here, death lost. Second, there is life after death. There was for Jesus. Third, this changes what I thought to be true about the nature of things. It changes what I thought about life and death and about God and about heaven and hell. Number four, this changes who I think this man is. He must be the Lord of life and also the Lord of death. Number five, if he's the Lord of life and death, then what he says is true. Number six, if what he says is true, he is the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father, that is to God, except through me. And number seven, the only hope in the face of death, then, must be Jesus. Does that seem improbable to you? Well, no matter how improbable it is, says Doyle, that's the only option that's left. Let me ask you a question. Have you acted on that? Have you surrendered to Jesus?
0: Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, is it at all possible that we're not as amazed about the empty tomb as we ought to be?
1: Well, I think everything uh, in life, you know, the more we hear it, the more it becomes rote for us. And, uh, and the more it becomes rote for us, uh, the less we pay attention. However, I'm going to say this, especially for those of us who um, maybe are growing older or who are facing death or have had death in the family, death of a loved one. I mean, I think we need to press closer to the empty tomb because the empty tomb is what hope actually is. You can't be a hopeful person until you've seen the empty tomb. All that this life has will eventually lead to the grave, but the empty tomb tells us there is something beyond the grave. And for those who are put our hope in Christ, we know that we will be raised like him.
0: Hallelujah. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know that there are times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also take the opportunity to learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, the YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is as widely available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.